Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Tyler Orton. Little doubt you've seen those trucks carrying the 1-800-GOT-JUNK logos across the city. The company's founder, Brian Scudamore, he joins us later today to discuss his book. It's called WTF. He'll explain the title in just a few moments. And it's how he managed growth for the company across the continent over the last three decades. A little later on, Vancouver-based startup FinAI, they want to change how we approach online banking. The company has just closed a financing round worth $14 million to help boost its growth. Co-founder Natalie Cartwright, she joins us shortly. One last note, BIV's Business Excellence Series hits the Vancouver Club November 8th. Our expert panel will talk specifics on strategic wealth management at each level and each stage aiming to arm you with a game plan to build personal prosperity. Go to BIV.com slash events for more details. First, though, here's Brian Scudamore. I think it would be hard for anybody living in Metro Vancouver not to spot those ubiquitous 1-800-GOT-JUNK trucks hauling loads all around the region. And our next guest, he founded the company decades ago, and it has overseen its ballooning growth that has helped take the parent company on a path to various other services. His new book on leadership, it's called WTF, Willing to Fail, How Failure Can Be Your Key to Success. It comes out November 6th. Joining us today is Brian Scudamore. He's the founder and CEO of O2E Brands. It is the parent company of 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Brian, thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me, Tyler. So let's go backwards a little bit. Tell us what was kind of the initial inspiration for launching the service that you're, you're very well known for at this point. Sure. 29 years ago, I was in the McDonald's drive through in Carisdale, and I saw this beat-up old pickup truck in front of me with plywood sides on the box. It was painted. It said Mark's Hauling. And I looked at the truck because I was thinking of a way to pay for college. I was one course short of graduation from high school that year. I saw the truck and I said, ah, there's my ticket. $700, a beat up old pickup truck is what it got me. Some flyers and business cards for another 300. I was into it for a thousand bucks, had a business within a week. And ironically, what funded my college education uh, also inspired me to drop out. I was three years into UBC and some other universities and I thought, I am learning much more about business by running one more so than I am studying in school. And I remember sitting down with my dad, who was a liver transplant surgeon, to share the good news that I was dropping <laughs> out. And you can imagine he did not agree, but he's on side today. Oh, that's great to hear. But I mean, look, it's been a near three decade long journey. How long do you think it took maybe the family to come around and understand what you're now passionate about, how you're looking to grow such a business? Yeah, so I, I developed this attitude, WTF, which really means willing to fail. It's having the courage to make mistakes. Now, no one wants to be foolish and repeat them, but the ability to make mistakes, learn from them. And every time something bad has happened in my life, whether it's been personal, whether it's been business, it's always helped me see and it's led me to a, a better place to see that things work out for the best. You've got to trust and take the learning from that experience. Now, how long did that take? There's, there's many moments in WTF, the book, that talk about different failures. I don't know if I realized what was going on when each of them happened, um, but they all layered on and, and built upon themselves. One event, one such event, probably the first failure where it was very difficult. I was certainly depressed when it happened. 
I brought 11 employees, all 11 employees, my entire company into a room one morning, and I gave them the bad news that I had to let them all go. This is five years into the company, half a million in revenue. And I just said, as your leader, I've let you down. I might not have hired the right people, trained you, given you the love, the support, whatever it would have been that would take to make you and our business successful together. I cleaned house and started again. And uh, it taught me that day, and I'm looking at a sign in our office right now at the front of the reception that says it's all about people with my name below it, my commitment to finding the right people and treating them right. Well, take me through that a little bit, because when you say it's all about people, it's not just the employees, but I think you guys have developed a, a bit of a reputation for being very focused on kind of customer. Was there like a uh, road to Damascus sort of uh, moment for you? Uh, like what kind of f- helped you figure out that this is why you wanted to be such a, a person focused sort of company? Yeah, we, we believed that if we found the right people and treated them right, those people would then go on to treat the customer right. So the philosophy is take care of our people, they'll take care of our customers. Take care of our customers, they'll take care of our brand, and everything grows. So when people often say customers king, the customer's the most important, I respectfully disagree. Our people, our people are absolutely the most important. We are in a day where, especially in this beautiful city of Vancouver, we're all so proud to be a part of, it's so tricky to find great people. It's an expensive city. It's hard to attract talent. We're going through great growth. We really, really work hard. We're not perfect by any means, but we work hard to find the right people and only let the right ones in, the ones who see our vision, who want to be a part of building something bigger and better together. Now, where did that moment come where I said, you know, the aha of let's take care of people first and then they'll take care of the customers? I, I think I was inspired by Starbucks. I got the good fortune to meet Howard Schultz, the founder, a couple of times, had some good conversations with him, and I learned that his philosophy was take care of those baristas, make them partners, give them health care in a a space that wouldn't typically have that. And he took a unique approach, which as a customer of Starbucks, I'm there many times a, a week, if not a day, and I'm impressed with how you can have a smiley barista behind that bar making, you know, not a great wage but they got a smile on their face and they're proud of what they do. Well, if we keep talking about how important people are, you guys have had major expansion as well. And I'm, I'm wondering how much part of it is kind of knowing that you're able to expand into other cities. You're not going to have maybe the day-to-day oversight that you were used to when you first launched the company. How was that journey of expansion and making sure that you're setting up the right teams across cities throughout the continent? Yeah, it's a great question, Tyler. So for me, Um, you know, I I think I learned that if you find the right people at the highest levels and you empower them to choose people to bring into the family, so to speak, with the same level of care and due diligence that you put in, that that's what's going to be most important. I can't be in Tulsa overseeing the franchise there. I can't be in Chicago. We're in 250 markets across Canada, the United States and Australia, many that I will never visit in my lifetime. So for me, the secret is find such great people, bring them together once or twice a year to to connect, to get to know each other, to make sure that our values are still aligned. And we work hard with our people just to make sure that they then find the right people. And so one of the biggest pride points I take is I love inspiring entrepreneurship. The whole reason we started four brands, Shack Shine, Wow One Day Painting. If I look at our companies, 
It's to have people come in and they could be a call center agent. They could be someone working in the trucks. They ultimately have the opportunity if they wish to grow into a franchise ownership position. And so taking care of those people, inspiring entrepreneurship uh, is what fires me up. So take me through kind of the steps that you had in mind when it came to growth for the company. You mentioned earlier on you were at a certain point where you had uh, maybe a dozen employees. You had to lay them off. You're at about uh, half a million of revenue. At Where did you get to when you realized that expansion was on the horizon and you knew that you could succeed? Or, or was that maybe just a risk that you were willing to take at the time because maybe there really aren't any guarantees in business? Yeah, there's absolutely no guarantees. I think uh, failure is a temporary condition, but so is success. So it, it's knowing there will be waves and tides that go in and out. So how did I look to expand? The first move I made about eight years in the business, we were at a million in revenue, which you know was a fairly long time. I was proud of that number, but we do a million in revenue across our brands on a given day uh, today. So that momentum has built. But that first eight years, we looked at systematizing the business, and then we looked at scaling into other, other areas. And what we did is we, our model of growth was franchising. We followed a brand that I've always admired, the College Pro Painting brand, and we did a student franchise model. Now, we did actually fail. We really did. We, we had 15 franchise owners. They made money, but as a parent company, as a head office, we did not. In fact, we lost uh, money for the first time in our history uh, when we had franchised under that model. But what that failure taught us was it was a stepping stone to learning uh, about franchising without having these contracts that locked people into a five or 10 year franchise deal. We had students who we were able to say, you know, thank you for the year. You had a one year contract. We're done. We were able to retool the model and create a more mature franchise setup where people would buy into a franchise and make an investment, but it was a year-long operation for us for 1-800-GOT-JUNK versus just a student summer uh, franchise. So we, we took the learning that we built, and we did one franchise in our first year of 1999. That franchise owner, Paul Guy, hit a million dollars in his first full calendar year and paved the way for others where we saw, okay, we've got a model here that is working. And we started to quickly scale with the help of uh, the press. Well, tell me this, though. I, I mean, if you look forward to what's going on in kind of, uh, I guess, economic opportunities across British Columbia, we were alluding to the fact that it's a very tight job market right now. How do you make it about the people in a way that you can ensure that you're not going to have a lot of those attrition or retention issues that a lot of other companies are facing right now? Yeah, I think it's back to the culture of find the right people, but treat them right. We get five weeks paid vacation versus what's required by law. We have a profit sharing program called the Great, Great Game of Business where we run the financials like it's a game and we share profits with everybody in the company. We try and do little things, just um, you know, the, the how we treat our people and, and open office environment and culture. We um, have what's called a first round Friday where every Friday a different department hosts a beer, a drink of some sort where people can sit down, socialize at the end of uh, an afternoon on a Friday. So we try and just breed this connection and show people that we care about each other. This isn't the company caring about you. Let's foster a culture where all of our people can care about each other. I mean, the number of weddings we've had from people, both franchise owners or 
employees in the company, the long-term friendships. It's, uh, it's something to be proud of. And so we do lose people. There's plenty of opportunities and amazing companies in Vancouver, but it's something you've got to work at, prioritize, and really invest in. Well, do you think that this is a model that could be applied universally to all companies, or is there maybe a little bit something special about what you guys have going on? I, I'm just curious about like why more companies would not be taking cues from what seems to be such a successful you know, business model. I certainly think it can apply. I mean, culture is in everything. It's in uh, sports, it's in politics, it's in the community, wherever it might be. And I think that it's, you know, an expression I've heard, speed of the leader, speed of the group. The, the leader has to get out there and grow a culture based on what is important to them. Our values are passion, integrity, professional, professionalism, and empathy. And I, I learned from a book, Jim Collins wrote a book called Good to Great, where he says, you've got to be so clear on your values, not what you're trying to be, but who you are. And so we get out there and we work on just hiring people that fit with values. And as long as they fit with our values, even if they don't have the skill, they can learn. As long as they've got the passion, the integrity, and so on, um, we just we end up having fun together. Your, your question, Tyler, of why more companies don't embrace culture, I don't know. I wish they did because I do think that any company out there, you can take any company on the planet, all you've really got is people. You look at a company like Amazon, and it's so easy to order a book or order something with one click. You don't get to experience their people, but it's, there's, there's people behind all these ideas, all the innovation. And I think culture is what keeps people together and what helps companies thrive. I mean, I think 1-800-GOT-JUNK is probably the most recognizable brand for the parent company. But tell me a little bit about what made you decide to expand into other services. You guys have moving services. You mentioned the uh, the painting services earlier as well, as well as Shack Shine, which uh Clean out those gutters that, uh, uh, look, right now, Vancouver in the fall, I that's got to be going through the roof at, at this point. But uh, what made you decide to expand what you guys were initially offering? Yeah, I think there's a few things. Addiction to build and want more. Not more money. I've never been a money guy. I drive a little Toyota pickup truck. I wear my jeans and Converse every day. Um, but what I mean is just the growth and opportunity, watching others take something and, and grow it and the pride we all feel from that. So we were sold out in about 2006 or seven with 1-800-GOT-JUNK. We had a bunch of big media hits, the Oprah Winfrey show and so on. And, and we ultimately sold out. So we said, how do we keep this great growth of adding people to our family? And I came up with the name O2E, which was ordinary to exceptional. If I look at everything as our filter of how we select brands and things to add to the business, we have to take something ordinary like junk removal and make it exceptional through customer experience. If I think of our painting business, how did we take an ordinary world of, of painting and make it exceptional? We created Wow One Day Painting where we go paint people's homes in a day. And everyone knows you can paint one room in a day, so you just put the right number of people in the house no one's bumping into each other. They're all in separate rooms, and you get it done with the same quality. There's no rush. So that's our filter, O2E, ordinary to exceptional. So, uh, Brian, let's say you go back to your uh, younger self, you know, back when you're outside that McDonald's at Carisdale. Is there anything that you would have liked to have told him at the time, or would you have been happy just learning, you know, to fail on your own? 
So it's interesting. It, it's, it's one of the most common questions I get is some sort of what you just asked. You know, what would you do differently? What would you change? Hindsight's twenty twenty. The honest answer has been and will forever be nothing. I needed to make the mistakes I made as that stepping stone towards learning to be in the situation I'm in now. I had to fire all 11 people as tough as it was for me and for them so I could learn how to be a leader. I had to near bankrupt the company 20 years in when the financial meltdown happened globally because I needed to learn how to better manage the financial side of the business. I had to learn to find the right leader, Eric Church, our COO, to take the business to the next level. Learning is okay. Uh, you know, it reminds me of my kids, the whole family, we're all skiers. We go up to Whistler all the time. And one of my daughters came to me one day and she's like, you know, I just don't like ski school. I keep falling. I hate it. And I said, you have to celebrate your falls. You have to learn that falling is what helps you learn not to fall and to become a better skier. And uh, it, it didn't fall on deaf ears because I remember she said to me at the end of the next day, she goes, guess what? I fell today a whole bunch of times. So failure, what would I do differently? Nothing. I'd just be open to failure. I'd be open to making mistakes and then always reflecting on the learning. Well, excellent. Uh, Brian, I really want to thank you for joining us on the show today. Thanks for having me, Tyler. A lot of fun. That's Brian Scudamore. He is the founder and CEO of O2E Brands, and he has a new book coming out, WTF, Willing to Fail, How Failure Can Be Your Key to Success, and that comes out November 6th. Stay with us. Finn.ai co-founder Natalie Cartwright, she joins us next to talk about the company's latest $14 million raise. Vancouver-based financial technology company FinAI, they've had a busy few years, culminating earlier this week with a $14 million financing round led by investors in Vancouver and Seattle. Joining us today, it is Nat Cartwright. She is the co-founder and COO of FinAI. Natalie, thanks for joining us on the show. Nice to be on the show, Tyler. So first off, this $14 million raise that you guys just landed here, tell me a little bit about what this does for the company, maybe what it does for accelerating growth moving forward. Absolutely. It's a huge proof point for the company that we've we've found a really good product market fit with uh, banks globally who are interested in figuring out how they can help with their customers and improve their financial well-being. So for us, it means that we get to, one, increase the product that we've got and be able to expand what we are able to offer to our customers. And two, we're able to accelerate both our sales uh, growth and also the growth of the hiring at the company. Well, let's talk a little bit about the uh, product that you guys are, are best known for. It's a virtual banking assistant. What really makes this thing stand out versus what else is in the market here? It's really a new market. So if you think about where we are today in the world of consumer-facing AI, we're just kind of at that tipping point where we're going to start to see it coming to mass market kind of right at the tipping point of the beginning of the internet or other types of technologies like cell phones. And so what we're doing is we're helping banks leverage that technology to really deliver more value to their customers. Banks have an incredible amount of data on their customers and they can use that to help them manage their cash flow, to train them about things like uh, credit coaches and, and just to help them better manage their financial well-being. Uh, in part because it's the right thing to do, but also because there's a great business case for it, which is improving the lifetime value of customer, increasing the net promoter score of their customers, and coaching those customers to be better customers so that they can then go on to get things like mortgages, which are very interesting business lines for banks. 
So if I'm just an average uh, banking customer here and I'm using this assistant, what is it uh, that it does? What what can I uh, use it for? How is it uh, kind of an interesting, unique tool here? So if you're an everyday if you're an everyday customer, it's a new channel or it could be an existing channel within your bank. So you could go and you could speak to your bank or a, an assistant as if it's a human. So you could say, how much money do I have? Or am I, um, you know, can I afford this? Or it might push you a notification saying, hey, Tyler, you're using more than 33% of your credit card right now. Maybe you should pay that down. It might negatively impact your credit score. So one, there's a natural language processing engine where it understands how people speak to their banks. So you can chat to it over voice or text as if it's a person. And two, there's some analytics that kind of look at what's happening, just your basic financial data to help not just look retroactively at what's happened, but also to proactively help you manage as you go forward. So it's the benefit from the banks, not only that customers are, I guess, having additional customer service, but that I guess customers would be more engaged in a way that they wouldn't otherwise be. Yeah, customers are more engaged. And it's kind of, uh, it's kind of like when ATMs came into play, it wasn't that tellers disappeared, it was that now tellers could spend more time having more meaningful conversations. And it's sort of a similar thing where assistants are really good at basic information and being able to answer easy questions or nudge you around some, some kind of, uh, you know, more, more of the fundamental pieces. And that leaves the people who are working either at banks or at call centers to help have more meaningful conversations with the, with the customers. So I recall myself, I've been uh, speaking to other banks uh, as well. I, I was speaking to Daryl White, CEO of Bank of Montreal, a couple months back. And we're just talking about kind of that de- ongoing debate about whether or not some banks do certain tools in-house or some banks go out to you know uh, third parties and help them and uh, work on the tools that they need. What is kind of the debate that you see going on right now within the banks about whether to go forward and access, you know, the the tools and expertise that a third party such as Fin AI offers versus just doing some stuff in house? Yeah, that's a great question. And when I first started in fintech, the big debate was it was banks versus fintechs and who was going to win. And it was this David and Goliath story. And the evolution has been pretty swift, which is really all about partnerships. And what we're seeing is kind of a hybrid approach from almost every bank where there's some things that make a lot of sense to build internally and there's lots of things that make sense, make sense to partner externally. So in our case, it's a great case for partnering externally because one thing that we do is we build a natural language processing engine that understands retail banking. There's no sensitive data in there. It's not anything about people's personal finances. It's taking things like what's my balance or how much cash do I have and training a model to understand what that actually means. So actually by using a product like ours, we can take that generic data from all of our customers and reinforce the model to make a better outcome for everyone. We can also do it at a much uh, cheaper price point because we are a fintech. We can tend to move a little bit more quickly, and, and that's what we're built to do. So we've got teams who are purposeful at doing that. Um, what we try and do, we've designed our product so that we leave most of the heavy lifting on the security and on the scalability with our bank partners because that's really where their core competency is. So we, we have bank-grade security. We have everything in place, but... To the extent possible, we design the product so that uh, things like all the authentication still go through the firewall on the bank side. I think it's kind of a divide and conquer approach. Everyone wants to uh, double down on their core competencies and try and find partners where uh, it's going to be more expensive for them or where they're not going to deliver the best user experience. Yeah, and that's often the sense that I get, just that idea that these different organizations can be complementary versus, say, competitive. And I, I also maybe let's take a little bit of a, a time travel back 
and, and talk about, uh, I guess, the first time you and I chatted a few years back. And it, and it was a very different company back then. Tell me a little bit about the first iteration of FinAI, back when you guys were still known as Peso. And I, I guess you guys were focused more on, say, mobile payments. Tell me about kind of the decision to pivot the company, what you realize, and how you guys ended up where you are right now. Yeah, that's exactly right. We started with a very different business model. We were doing peer-to-peer payments for the Canadian market. And we decided to pivot because we realized the business model wasn't going to work. We were limited geographically to the Canadian market, uh, just wasn't wasn't a big enough market given the revenue we were able to achieve under that business model. And so, um, like lots of businesses, I think almost every business that I know in some way has gone through pivots. Um, ours was a pretty dramatic one in that we had built a product. We got kind of decent traction on it. We had about 10,000 users. We facilitated a million dollars of small payments for Canadians. And we were early on with this thesis around chat and around some basic AI. And we had a bank approach us and say, hey, we're really interested in doing doing something with you. Would you be interested interested in building us a proof of concept? And um, it was great timing. We realized that our business model wasn't going to work. We had this really interesting opportunity that opened up the world ge- geographically for us, opened up great partnerships, opened up um, better revenue streams and and really an ability to impact in a much more meaningful way than we ever would have been uh, able to do on our own. So we started working with them and we were able to, uh, ATB Financial was our first customer out of Alberta, built the product with them and then we were able to resell that product to other banks globally. And the, the pivot was, uh, it happened two years ago and for me it's just a huge testament to the one thing that I know to be true in business, which is the only thing that matters is the people in it. Because the company is the same co-founders, it's the same investor group, uh, it's um, an, an incredible set of customers, but we had a lot of people who helped us figure out how to make it work and to refinance and to really shift the whole company around um, to create really something that I would never would have imagined possible two years ago, which is closing a, a 14 million Series A financing. So it was a lot of hard work by a lot of incredible people who we are exceptionally grateful to. Well, uh, among the investors in this Series A uh, round that uh, just closed is BDC Capital Women and Technology Fund. And uh, they actually, in the announcement, they, they pointed to your leadership as one of the reasons why they wanted to get involved here. Uh, tell me a little bit. I, I mean, I, I've spoken to a lot of uh, people in the technology scene, and, and there still seems as if, to a certain degree, among some investment circles, that there's this bit of a an old boys club that still persists here. How important is it to you that uh, we do have a lot of these industries, a lot of these organizations, making sure that they support women, making sure that a lot of these technologies do get the chance that they deserve? Yeah, we, we, we are very bullish on diversity across a number of dimensions. And again, we believe it because it's the right thing to do. But more importantly, we believe it because it's fundamental to business success. We work with uh, people all over the world, and we want to make sure that we build a product that reflects that. So today, our company is 46% women, 54% men. Our board is about uh, 50-50 when you include observers, our uh, senior management has many women, including myself. So we we just want to build a world where we can actually reflect what's going on. We're gendered from a very young age, which means that we're taught to bring different things to the table, and we want all of those things brought to the table. We equally equally care about where people have uh, come from. About 50% of the people who work here weren't originally uh, born in Canada. Some have come 20 years ago, some have come last month, but we also want to bring global perspectives. We try and find people who come from different educational backgrounds. We try and find people who've got different experience at different types of companies, whether it's banking experience or small tech uh, experience or a new VP of technology just joined us from Boeing. So when we think about diversity, we certainly think about it from the perspective of gender, but also from all different dimensions. And it's really to put resilience in the business and to bring the best of every world. We're in a very, very innovative space and we're looking for creative people to help us 
problem solve a lot of big challenges every day. So um, it's something that we're very proud of and it's something that we will continue to do so that we can bring the best heads together uh, to continue on our success journey. Well, you know, it looks as if with the uh, the $14 million, you guys will have a, a lot of growth going forward and uh, it's going to be exciting times and we'll have to keep in touch. But for now, uh, Natalie, I want to thank you for joining us on the show today. The pleasure is always mine. Thank you so much. That's Natalie Cartwright, co-founder and COO of FinAI. And that's it for BIV today. Thank you for listening. You can find our archives on iTunes and Stitcher. And you can also find our news stories at BIV.com. We'll be back next time. 